The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips, and thanks again for joining me on Psych Up Live. Recently, because of the COVID pandemic, and both recently and for years because of racial injustice, illness, accidents, war, terrorism, school shootings, violence, suicide, and drug overdose, many, too many, have suffered the traumatic loss of loved ones. How do we cope? How do we deal with the heartbreak? How do we deal with grief? We are so fortunate to have as our guest today, Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, who brings us her personal and professional understanding of how to bear the unbearable, of how to open a space to process, integrate, and deeply honor our grief. Drawing upon her powerful book, Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief, and decades of supporting individuals, families, and communities, she invites a new meaning and experience of grief. Dr. Cacciatore is a tenured research professor at Arizona State University and directs the graduate certificate program in trauma and bereavement. Her research has been published in peer-reviewed journals such as The Lancet and Families in Society. Her latest book, which we'll be talking about, Bearing the Unbearable, won the Indies Book of the Year Award in Self-Help, and it made it into Oprah's basket of favorite things. In 2016, Dr. Cacciatore started the first care farm in the world for traumatic grief based on a framework that incorporates almost 40 domestic and farm animals rescued from abuse, torture, neglect, and homelessness. Sila Care Farm. She also founded the Miss Foundation in 1996, an international NGO that helps families facing the death of a child. Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, it is a privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these really important and not often enough spoken about subjects. Right, great. Well, Dr. Joe, as I know you say people call you, uh, may I ask you to share with us what brings you to this important work that has helped so many people for so long? Well, absolutely. Uh, So I was a a young mother with um, three children, and in 1994 I um, had my fourth child, and uh, she died in July. I had, uh, at the time, two boys and two girls, and they don't know, they never found a cause for death for her. Uh, She was a baby when she died, and that sort of catapulted me into what I call the longest, darkest night that my soul would ever know. Mm. I uh, dropped to a dangerously low weight. I weighed less than 90 pounds within a few months after she died. I had great difficulty eating uh, getting food past the the constant lump in my throat, I was not 
functioning in a world that could not hold space for my grief that actually made it harder for me to cope with grief because everyone kept telling me I, in, explicitly or implicitly that I should be feeling and doing things that I, that I didn't feel and want to do. Uh, the messages were, it's been two months, isn't it time for you to get on with it? You know, you have to be strong for your other children. Don't, shouldn't you be feeling better by now? And that wasn't what my heart felt. And, I, and the incongruence between what society was telling me and what I was feeling, I've sort of always been a person who lived from the center of my true self. So that incongruence between what everyone was telling me I should be feeling and what I knew I was actually feeling mm-hmm. were, were, were at a point of tension. And it was that tension that really... Uh, sort of reduced me to a place where I couldn't trust in myself. I didn't know if I was ever going to be okay because the world kept implying explicitly or implicitly that something was wrong with me. Yes. And once I finally got a sense of equilibrium and started to realize sort of my fist in the air, this is mine. I'm not letting anyone colonize my grief, my emotions, my authentic self. Once I could stand up with a strong back and say, this is mine and you can't take it, then things started to shift for me. But until I got that sense, until I was able to connect with that sense in me, that strength in me, that that sort of power of both grief and love, uh, it was a long road. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I, I think for me, the social space made it harder for me to cope, at least in the first few years. And I'm sure that there are so many listeners out there that are in some way raising their fist to say, I've lived through that. I've been told that. I've heard it over the years with people that I've worked with, and it does disenfranchise your feelings, just as you say. And one of the things that I just want to read the one quote of yours that I've shared so much with people, which is, the grief makes sense because, as you write, when we love deeply, we mourn deeply. Extraordinary grief is an expression of extraordinary love. Yes. So it can't be any other way. But, you're, you know, the whole notion, I've heard parents say in groups that they were told they're not at the right level of grieving. The favorite mm. book of a, of a group of 9-11 young widows that I work with, because they could relate to it, was the story of a woman who kept being pressed by her friends to go out. And the name of her book is I'm Grieving as Fast as I Can. And over mm. and over, over and over again, People have personally shared just what you shared in terms of the loss of your beloved child. So let's ask, let me ask you, when you say to people, be with the grief, bear the unbearable, how does a person do that, Dr. Joe? Yes, it sounds easier than it is, right? Because along with... Being with the grief means that we have to also be with a lot of other emotions that are very, very painful and that we may never have felt before, depending on the degree of catastrophe involved in our grief, right? So uh, being with grief means being with a lot of emotions like fear, despair, anguish, sometimes guilt and shame, 
blame, rage. Uh, there are so many emotions that fall under something I call the grief umbrella. And so mm-hmm. when we practice being with grief, it means opening our hearts to all of those painful emotions, which is exceedingly hard to do in a world that's pushing something that I call the happiness cult, right? In our world, we want people to be happy all the time. We feel like we should be happy. We're entitled to feel good always. And when we don't feel good, there's something wrong with us, and we just need to, quote, choose happiness. This comes from sort of uh, both from hyper-religious doctrine, and also from New Age, more contemporary New Age doctrine, sort of just choose healing or just give it to God. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to feel your pain. Uh, Choose joy instead. Look, when when we experience minor difficulties in life, then perhaps something like cognitive behavioral therapy where you take a negative thought and replace it with a positive thought, perhaps that can be somewhat meaningful for us. It could, have some, it could have some power to shift our view of, oh, well, look at it this way. But when catastrophe has struck, if your parent has died too soon or your child has died or your sibling has died young or, or your partner has died or you've experienced suicide or homicide of someone you deeply love, this is catastrophe. This is different. Right, and right. you can't you can't simply replace a negative thought with a positive. It just doesn't work. It's it's a reductionistic approach, and it's often an approach that's based in fear and not love. Because love says, "I'll meet you where you are, even if it's terrifying, even if it's awful, even if it's painful, and even if it's going to evoke feelings and and what we call in the literature mortality salience in me." Uh, I'm going to choose to to love you and stay with you through this, as opposed to fear, which responds with, shouldn't you feel better by now? Let's go to a movie. Let's go have a drink. Let's not think about it. Let's try something else, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so we don't, unfortunately, in our culture, we don't create space for people to be with those painful emotions, with those painful memories, with, those, with the re-experiencing of trauma, should they feel safe enough to share something with us, unfortunately, our response is often um, superficial, laconic, as Irv Yalom likes to say, uh, and, 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 and all too brief. We don't want to give people the, the necessary time to be to grieve and regrieve over and over. I mean, it's been almost 26 years for me since my daughter's death, and there isn't a single moment of any hour of any day of any week of any year when I don't miss her. And so I'm always grieving. Sometimes it's in the foreground, sometimes it's in the background, and it certainly hasn't made my life smaller. It's actually made my life bigger, and it's helped it's helped to increase my capacity to see and hold and witness the suffering of others. Mm-hmm. We miss we miss so much in our attempt to evade our feelings in in, in our culture. And the last thing we need is for people to feel they're grieving in an incorrect way, Doctor Joe. I mean that Sir? we don't need that on top of everything else. That's the other right. thing, the other thing, one thing you say in the book is that one of your goals is to be with people as they move with, between, and through the grief. And you make it clear that our emotions actually move, that we actually can, and that 
we can actually have gratitude even as we have grief. Let's talk a little bit about the unity of opposites because I think it's such an important piece. Maybe talk about that a little. Sure. Well, one of the things I talk about in my book, it's a, it's a Zen proverb. They say the road up and the road down are the same road, right? Just depends on which direction you're facing, right? Mm-hmm. So this idea that, that we have to be either or is, is a strange and unusual myth that comes primarily from modern-day culture. Because if you look at ancient religious cultures, just about all ancient, from the Desert Fathers and Desert Mothers in Christianity to the Sufi wisdom to the old Buddhist and, and Hindu wisdom, across the board, even uh, from, what I, from what I understand, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a Jewish scholar, but from what I've read from ancient texts, is that, that, that the ancient spiritual leaders knew that, that suffering, knew that grief, knew that pain had meaning. And they knew that you could experience your pain and your grief and your suffering while at the same time experiencing joy and even sometimes euphoria. That doesn't happen right away. But the reality is that we can't, I don't have to relinquish, so it's been almost 26 years for me. In order for me to live a full and meaningful life, I do not need to relinquish my grief. In fact, staying connected to my grief, to my pain, and even to my trauma is what helps me to live a meaningful life. And so this dichotomous view of the world, if you're grieving, you can't be joyful. If you're in pain, you can't see beauty. That that's not necessarily true. It might be true initially for a time period. The reality, however, is that when we can fully inhabit our grief and stay with it, that that grief can be opening. It can open our, our lives. It can open our hearts and open our emotional space uh, capaciously to so much more than what we can see. Now, Here's part of the problem is that we're always rushing to what they call in modern-day research post-traumatic growth or, in a spiritual sense, the transformative experience. We're often, we often rush people to that. We often want to push them toward, well, what's the meaning that you can find in this? And, and Viktor Frankl talks about this in his work. And Frankl actually cautions both people who have suffered and people who love people who have suffered and says you can't push people toward meaning, and you can't even rush yourself toward meaning, that it has to ensue, it has to unfold in its own time, right? You can't, the flower, the bud of the flower, you can't say, you can't summon it to open, right? It has to open when it's ready, and and that's that's the caution in talking about post-traumatic growth or transformative experiences, is that it has to happen in its own time. However, again, like the bud of the flower, the, the, the flower doesn't bloom unless it has enough, uh, unless its soil is enriched, unless it has enough water, unless it has enough sunshine, unless it's tended. And just like that bud, we need those things from, from our social support system in order for us to, when we're ready, and there's no time limit on this, but when we're ready to have that experience of post-traumatic growth. Well, when you when we put out there the idea that being with grief means not being afraid to live with it 
as it unfolds, to feel it some moments wash over you, and at the same time, to take joy in somebody's baby, to love the new pet you have. If you don't have to feel disloyal by loving, by enjoying something you cooked, by seeing your friends, to the fact that you lost your own child, you'll be able to stay with her. You'll be able to stay with the grief as it unfolds because you won't disqualify yourself from other aspects of life. Right. Yes, that's true. And and, and important in this is that is that people come to that place in their own time and that it can't be ushered or rushed. And so what happens, though, if we give people the space and the respect and the compassion and the love is that let's say you have a a bereaved mother and her three-year-old tragically died and her best friend has a -a three-and-a-half-year-old. She may need... And this is essential to respect. She may need to withdraw her energy for a period of time. Yes. She may need to tend her own wound, turn her heart inward, and say, this isn't, I love you and I love your child. She may need to say this to her friend. I love you and I love your child. And I don't want any harm to come to either of you because I love you so much. And also, at the same time, it causes me so much pain to see you both together because it's a reminder of what I don't have and what I will never again have. And so I just need a little bit of space to process this and what it means to me. And when I'm ready, then we can start to reconvene. And it may be slow. Maybe it's that we meet for coffee for 10 minutes or tea for 10 minutes. And maybe the next time it's for 30 minutes. And maybe, and maybe then I'll need another break. Mm-hmm. Please love me through that. Please Mm. understand that I'm trying and give me the space and the time that I need to get there. It's perfect. We're going to stop at this point, but the message is just lovely. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're going to take a brief break. We are so privileged to have with us Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. She's the author of the special new book, Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief. It won the Indies Book Award of the Year in Self-Help and made it into Oprah's Basket of Favorite Things. Please stay with us. Much more to come. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. There are many innocent people who were found guilty of crimes that they did not commit. Join criminal defense investigator Jeff Stein for Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Each show, we'll discuss the problem, and it is a problem. The fact that because of incompetent investigations and a poor judicial system, anybody can become a victim. Can we fix this? 
Tune in to find out. You can listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. On Read My Lips Radio, producer and host, a.k.a. Radio Red, invites you to eavesdrop on her live, unscripted conversations with smart, savvy, creative people as she discovers what makes them tick, where they find their inspiration, when creativity first became their passion, and how their creative process can inspire the rest of us to think out of the box. Enjoy, a.k.a. Radio Red's always lively, cool conversations with creatives. Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Oh, how those lips can talk. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore and we're talking about bearing the unbearable, dealing with grief. And Dr. Joe was talking about, she gives such a great example of moving with and between and through the grief of a young mother who's not ready to yet be with her friend who also has a child because she's just lost a child. And the kind of compassion and sympathy we have to have not only for others, but even for ourselves in terms of our readiness and our ability to communicate that we may not be so ready. One of the things that Dr. Joe does with her um, clients and her patients that I said matters so much to me in my work, and I'm going to read what it is. She says that one of one, if she plays any role at all, it's to help them feel the complete unedited version of their particular story in the context of their family and in the context of this, their culture. Now, Dr. Joe, why is this so important? I think one of the reasons that it's so important is because each of us are so individual. So there's a concept that Monica McGoldrick, a, a scholar in the field, talks about, and she says it, it's the culture of one or cultural intersection, and how each of us brings our own sort of ethnic culture, our own religious culture, our own regional culture, linguistic culture, and even an experiential culture to whatever moment in life happens to be unfolding. Well, when, when catastrophe hits, so much of who we are and the nuances of our own catastrophe play a role in how we experience and express. So I, so my sense in doing this work for nearly a quarter of a century has always been that even if I'm working with two families from a specific ethnic group from a from a specific, who also share a specific religious group, maybe regional group, maybe even socio-political group. Even though they're very, very much alike in those ways, and let's say they both have a child who has died by suicide, there may be aspects of their own experience that are also quite different. For example, one family may have a history, let's say one of the parents has a history of childhood sexual abuse. 
that also is going to influence how they come to the experience. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I like to get into the nuance of, peop- of people's unique individual experiences, yes, there are things that are common and that we share, and there are also things that are so unique. And this is one of the reasons, so you, you understand this as a therapist, right? As a therapist, it's so important not to protocolize or over-manualize the care that we give to people through catastrophe because everyone brings something so different and so unique. And when we over-manualize, quote, treatment, then we lose the, the so important personal and intimate details. We lose the precision. We lose the specificity, which is so unique to each person in each trauma. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and you know, there's a reason, I guess I want to share, that people may need to tell their story many, many times. And often they'll say, I know you yeah. heard this. And I've said, well, every time you tell it, it's different. And so when friends or family don't want to hear it anymore, that's when there's. it's very important to find somebody who will hear it. Because I think you're right. Sometimes the person cannot in the early um, in facing the early stages of grief or the early days, they don't even have the words for the story. They will have it maybe two years later and why it meant right. what it meant. So yeah. <clears throat> the stories are so important. And in some yeah. groups, the power of the group to hold the story is incredible. Now, yes, absolutely. <clears throat> another thing that you talk about that I have not heard anyone else talk about is your balancing and working with the intensity of the grief and the intensity of the coping. Let's talk a little right. bit about that. Absolutely. So uh, so here's what our culture likes to see. Our culture likes to see how we manage grief, how we overcome grief. I mean, you can, you can find any number of articles. I remember an article that I read online by a pastor. I was just aghast. Someone sent it to me, and he said... Um, overcoming, the name of the article I think was Overcoming Grief, and he said, grief is one of the most dangerous emotional experiences a human being can have. And I I just, what? Um, So I, I, I think this idea of overcoming grief and managing grief and somehow quelling grief is a dangerous one. Because if you love someone very, very deeply and that person dies, you are probably going to miss that. If you're going to love that person for the rest of your life, you're probably going to miss them and grieve for them for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So yes. I think it's ill-advised to... to have a goal of bringing grief down. So that's never, to me, that's never resonated personally, but also in a scholarly way and professional way. My understanding of grief is that grief can be on a scale, for example, of if I say to someone, how intense was your grief this week? And they say, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the least, 10 being the most, the Likert scale. If someone says to me, my grief was a 10 this week, and I say, okay, tell me about how, how much capacity do you feel like you had to cope with that mm-hmm. 10 on a scale of 1 to 10? How, how was your coping? And they say, my coping was about a 9. Okay, well, 
That's right. pretty good. That's there's a congruence there. Right. Okay. So so even though their grief was a ten, they felt like they were coping in a healthy way. They wrote. They wrote. They felt. They prayed. They meditated. They ate clean and and they played dirty. They sweat. They moved their body and and they could move with the grief. They let the grief be and they fully inhabited it and they coped. Okay. That doesn't concern me. I am actually more concerned about the person who comes to me and says, if I say, how intense was your grief? And they say it was a seven. And I say, how, how, how able were you to cope? And they say, two. Right. That concerns me more because of the disparity between the subjective experience of intensity of emotion and the subjective experience of their capacity to cope. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and so for me, it's not about bringing the grief down. It's about building their muscle, their emotional, psychological muscle, so that they feel like they can cope. Because that grief is going to endure, if it's catastrophic loss, it's probably going to endure for the rest of their lives. And we have to give them the skills to be able to cope when grief presents and represents itself, whether it's five years later, 10 years later, 25 years later, or 50 years later. Well, if I was working with you, I would feel reassured and not frightened of my grief. If you said, well, well, Sue... Look at how you handled it, or okay, let's see how we're going to handle it. It's you're not hysterical about it. You're not, uh, in some way, making it something that has to be removed. So that's right. a very important message. It is very important, and I'll tell you one of the core reasons why it's so important. It helps people trust themselves mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we we fear what we don't trust. But when we trust, we don't fear. When we trust, we feel safe. And what better gift to help someone find in themselves than the capacity to feel safe with their own emotional experiences authentically? Mm-hmm. Well, and the ability, I can picture someone then on their own internalizing your message and thinking, oh my God, I feel so dark today. I miss him so much. And then be aware all right, maybe I'll walk, or mm. that, that there's a way to be with the grief and at the same time find other things, if that is what helps, or just be with the grief. Right. Well, what I would say is, yes, go for a walk. If walking helps you feel like you can cope, invite grief with you. <laughs> that's great. That's really great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things you say that's precious is you say everyone has their own grief print. Like a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. So what is it you're saying when you say that? Well, because um, kind of going back to the nuances of everyone's unique experiences. So let's say that I'm working with someone who, um, who, whose husband died. And let's say that uh, she has a, had a difficult relationship with dad growing up. And then dad died when she was young, and there are no other sort of important male figures in her life, no brothers, no close male friends, no sort of male energy upon which she can rely. Um, Her experience of grief, her grief print, might look very different, for example, than someone who has, who has also lost a husband, and 
has a very close relationship and abiding relationship with a father figure, has two older brothers who are very, very close, very present for her, has three best friends who are male, and let's imagine that she, when she comes in our first meeting, she says how important, both of them say how important that sort of male energy has been in their lives. And now, the first, in the first example, she's lost all of that, so she not only lost her partner, her husband, her best friend, her confidant, but she also lost that male energy that was so important to her. And let's say the second one also says this male energy is so important to me, and she still has that, so she's lost her best friend, her partner, her confidant, uh, all of these things to her, and also she still has that male energy, and she now relies on that male energy. One of the reasons why the grief print is so important is because you, you, yes, common experience, and also when you get into the precise specific details, just like a fingerprint, I can hold mine up and you can hold yours up, Sue, and we can look and we can say, gosh, those look exactly alike. But if you look very closely, there are some things that are different. Yes. So what's very important for us in grief is, for, is to be seen. And that means some of the specific nuances of our own unique experiences, our grief print, that make us different. When I'm working mm-hmm. with six families whose child died of sudden infant death syndrome, I could say, yeah, I've worked with six families whose children have died from sudden infant death syndrome and treat it as if they're all the same, but they're not. Right. They're all different and they're all unique and they want to be seen for that. Are there commonalities? Are there similarities? And are there things they share? Absolutely. There are also some differences. So we look at both what's, what we have in common and we also look at both, and we also look at what's different. And that's what the grief print is about. What's the same? What's different? How, how does it evolve over time? How does it move over time? What's dynamic? What's static? We are so used to using checklists in, you know, in not just medical care, but also, quote, mental health care. We're so used to the checklist. We're so used to the psychometric measures that we miss so much of the important qualitative information. Yes. Every client who walks into a therapist's office who has traumatic grief especially should be a research study. It should be an N of one. And we should get to know this person and their specific nuanced traumatic grief experience in such an intimate way that we know everything that makes them unique. And one of the beauties, just to hear you talk, of probably anyone working with you, is the fact that when you've had traumatic loss, you are sometimes so numbed out at the beginning, Dr. Jill, that you you don't remember your name, much less your brother and how important he is. But the fact that someone else wants to know about you and comes to know about you. And I've seen this with groups, such powerful groups, where someone will say, yeah, but you know, wait a minute. Aren't you the person who's so-and-so? So that is, they are mirrors or hold mirrors for each other. Just like eventually you know the threads that a person, at the beginning they can hardly see the threads or remember what it is, or really understand how big the grief is because this is the loss of all male connection. So, I mean, that's, that's where people, 
we don't want people to feel they're going to go and someone's going to do a recipe of your own grief stage one, two, three, done. It can't right. be that way. Yeah. You right. know, the person, your personal investment in the person and their story and their essence allows them to reown themselves in, in the yeah, process. Yes, and, and you love them through it. I mean, we, we've gotten away from talking about loving our clients. And Freud mm-hmm. talked about this. I mean, Freud talked about love and the importance of love. But we've become so sort of preoccupied in, in the therapy world with professional boundaries and such. Yeah, I get that, right? You don't want to have an inappropriate relationship. But you can extend a kind of civic love to people that really is centered on compassion and humanity. And humility that that they do start to see themselves and their story as something in which you invest, and that that is a very powerful thing to be seen, to be really seen. I mean, how many of us really, really feel seen mm-hmm. <laughs> in our lives, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, I will tell our listeners, and I will tell you in reading the book, uh, your book, Bearing the Unbearable. Um, Dr. Joe's description of your clients is so moving, you start to love them. Just reading. I was crying just reading some of the examples because it's so clear how you feel about them in terms of what it is they're facing and the journey that they're taking. So um, if you want any glimpse of what that kind of compassionate love looks like and feels like, be sure to read this book. Let's talk. I was just going to um, say real quick, I, I do love them. I mean, these are people I, I, you know, one of the bereaved moms I talk about in the book, her daughter died, her baby died, and, you know, her baby's symbol is ladybugs. And, you know, when her daughter died a lot of years ago, more than a decade ago, and still today when I see a ladybug, Mm-hmm. I'll take a picture of that ladybug with my cell phone and t- and send it to her and oh, say, really? I, you know, I'm thinking of her because oh, because I because I not only love them but I love their children, their their siblings, their parents, their their spouses because they've shared so much. I feel like I know them. You do, and, and <laughs> you do. yeah, 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 and so. It comes, we have to, the, I don't, I learned this in graduate school, I don't remember who said it, I apologize for, the, for not being able to attribute it, but one of my very wise professors said the best way to care for, to care for people as a therapist is to care about people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that extends, that extends to even people who die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Oh, one of the things, we're almost out of time, um, a military woman said to me, in terms of trauma, do we get over it or do we get on with it? And I've always said both have to happen at the same time. But after reading your book, I would say, but you correct me, you actually have to get with it mm-hmm. as you get as you get on with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think when you've had a traumatic grief experience, I think that even if you don't want, even if you'd rather, of course nobody wants to go through this, right? But I think even in the not wanting to go through it, we there's an understanding, a deeper understanding. If we can get with someone who supports us, someplace where we feel safe, someplace where we feel feel seen and heard, that we can learn to trust in ourselves, and then we start to understand that carrying this forward 
with us into our lives is what will help us live more fully, more authentically, and more meaningfully. Yes. That's the message. That is the Mm. message. Because we take a part of ourselves out of the picture when we don't take the person who we've loved and lost with us as an enduring person. Oh, we absolutely do. Uh, yeah, we absolutely do. Uh, it is. This comes uh, from me- much of the Holocaust literature that I've read. That 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 remembering the dead is our duty, and when we abdicate that duty, we we do we we cut uh, we cut ourselves off from from our parts of our identity that are essential. Uh, we do that consciously, and then unconsciously, we pay a price for that. Mm. Our lives become st- smaller and more contracted. You know, we, we tend to avoid feeling deeply in the future. Uh, you've, you've probably met those people. I've met those people who are sort of emotionally shut down from a yes. lifetime of machinations to avoid feeling. I'm going to stop you there because it's such a very important point because we have to take a break and we're going to come right back. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Her book, Bearing the Unbearable, we're talking about love, loss, and the heartbreaking path of grief. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Join five-time world and international boxing champion, mental health advocate, writer, and speaker, Mia St. John, for In the Ring with Mia. After losing her ex-husband and son to mental illness, Mia has set out to empower those who deal with mental illness, homelessness, poverty, and addiction. Tune in and join Mia in the ring. And together, you'll find the help and motivation that you need. Listen live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are working on your path to enlightenment, may we suggest another guide point to help you get there? It's Soul Healing Conversations with your host, Roz Kincaid. Roz and her guests are making this show a safe place to find balance, healing, and transformation. You'll learn how to manifest the best version of your life. Make sure you join Roz every week for Soul Healing Conversations, live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You 
are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live with you with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. And we're talking about love, loss, and heartbreaking, the heartbreaking path of grief and the importance of that path. And I just asked Dr. Joe that, especially because being here in New York, after 9-11, this was a problem in terms of rituals and burial, but now so many share the difficulty of not being able to use the traditional rituals in terms of dealing with a loved one who has died. And I wanted to ask you, Dr. Joe, what what do you say to those who have suffered in this way and feel bereft and not complete in the sense of we were supposed to do this How can we bury without a body? How can we do this? How do we proceed? Years pass, and they ask this. Yes, and I have worked with a number of families who, uh, adding suffering to suffering, had no opportunity for ritual, whether whether we are talking about uh, a woman with whom I work, worked whose baby died in 1963 and she was asleep and uh, during the baby's birth and they took the baby away and took the baby to the morgue and she never saw the baby again, mm-hmm. whether it's that or the parents I worked with whose children um, died in an explosion and there, was, there were no bodies to say farewell. Mm-hmm. So this this is one of the more complex and painful experiences. The part of part of the problem is that the mind has a very hard time wrapping itself around what happened when there's no opportunity to say farewell. And there's no easy answer for this unfortunately. Uh there unfortunately there's only the hope that people get good social support and that they have an opportunity to create rituals. The reality of it is it's never quite right. There is this ongoing pain from not having the opportunity to ritualize. Ritual, funeral rituals are usually with the body present or somehow the, the grievers have been able to say farewell. Mm-hmm. There are other rituals that people can engage in. Again, it's not the same, but I, I call them micro-rituals. There are public rituals, which are macro-rituals, so you can engage the community in a candle lighting, in a walk, in, um, in, in a run, in an event, in coming together to honor the person who died, whether or not the body is there. That's still a ritual. And then there are the micro-rituals. I work with a man whose 11-year-old son died and. From the time his son could speak, they had a little ritual where he would wake up in the morning and say, good morning, son, and he would say, good morning, dad. And that, that pain of losing that ritual when his son died was immense. And so he was able to reconvene the ritual, even though his son died. So his ritual became 
saying good morning to his son who died. So that's what I call a micro-ritual, these sort of mm-hmm. little personal rituals. It could be lighting a candle or burning incense or, or going on a, on, on a solitary hike or a pilgrimage or something like that. The, those things you can enact. So if you, ha- if you don't have a, bo- a body, the, if the person you loved, there's no more physical remains for you to engage with, for you to see, for you to say farewell. There are other ways to ritualize <sighs> And yeah. also, I, I, I feel like I need to acknowledge it's still not enough. I mean, it, it is an excruciatingly painful thing not to be able to see your person you love this much to say goodbye. But you do say, I, I, I couldn't agree more, but you say something that resonated with something I often say, which is part of the grieving involves transforming the relationship into an enduring presence of your loved one. And when I read right. what you wrote, you wrote... There is no better place for our loved one than to be with us. Mm-hmm. So we yeah. may not have the ritual and the burial site, but they are with us. They are in no better place. And that's what we do own. And that's what we can carry. Yes, that, that, so that sort of type of um, almost the work of keeping continuing bonds, as Dennis Kloss would say, ongoing bonds with our loved ones who died is, a, is a, an exceedingly important one. So ritual is really, Dr. Suki Miller calls ritual the antidote to helplessness, right? And, and, then, and so ritual is, a, is one means of staying connected, but so are some other things like mm-hmm. Like just remembering them, putting their pictures up, talking about them, I- inviting other people to share memories, um, service done in their honor, helping other people, kindness done in their honor, the kindness project, for example. There are things that we can do that keep, that bring their love to the world, that keep them very much with us. It's not enough. It is not enough. It should be more. I get that. For many people, you know, uh, there's a sort of, a, in a sense, a psychological pushback, at least for a while, against that because of, of course. the, the yeah. sort of protestation of, I don't want my, ch- I don't want to remember my child <laughs> through helping others. I want my child to be here, and I want to braid her hair, right? right. Yes, right. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And at some point, the mind starts to say, I. I wish that was a choice, but it's not a choice I get to make. So the choice that I have right now is that I get to bring her love to the world in a different way. Mm. The other thing that you said that fits in and that I want our listeners to hear is you said, those we love deeply that have died are part of our identity. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think that that, as you say, we want the rituals, but the other piece, and it takes time to be ready to come to a place. Absolutely. You know, you know, it's easy for yeah. me to read it, but if you have just lost someone, it's very hard to even compute what this could even mean. It brings me to yeah. something else that many people talk about, and that is once you've had the unthinkable or the unspeakable happen to a loved one, Dr. Joe, you're afraid it's going to happen again. You yeah. live with the worry that it could happen again. Yes. Now, yes. how do you how do you address that with people? What would you say to our listeners who feel frightened? 
Yes, well, this is what I address with people every single day. Let's talk about it. I mean, there's no way. I can't guarantee anything. I have worked with people who have lost multiple children at different time periods in different tragedies, cancer and an accident, for example. This, it does happen. It's, it's not common, but it happens. And I can't say to someone who has fear about losing someone else they love very much, I can't say to that person, oh, don't be afraid. Because the reality is that when we think about losing people we love, especially those we love most deeply, it strikes fear in us. And so what I say is let's work with the fear. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. What, are you, okay. what are you most afraid of? Right? And, and, and what do you imagine that would be like? I take them right into the center of it because I'm not afraid of them. I'm not afraid of their strong emotions. Sometimes it means they're, you know, in my, in my office or outside by the river on the care farm sobbing, and I say, okay, let's, let's stay with that. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of strong emotional expression. I, I am not going to lie to someone and say it's not going to happen to you again because that, that, somebody did that to me. Somebody lied to me and said it's not going to happen to you again. And, and the lie is in the assumption that it won't or the guarantee that it won't mm-hmm. because it could. And that's a fear that's very real. Now, the, on the flip side of this fear, the beautiful part of this fear is that this fear, staying close to the fear, close to the awareness that someone else we love might die, can help us to, to appreciate, to prioritize, and to live with fewer regrets. Okay. You know, in the interest of time, we are just about out of time. What would be your take-home message? Because I also want to tell them about your books and how to find you. What, what, of course. Very, what, what take-home message would you want to share with our listeners? Oh, there are many, but... Uh, Here's my, my sort of mantra, that my superpower is that I feel, and feeling is a superpower. I, I hope that all of you out there listening have someone with whom you feel safe to feel. Mm, beautiful. Okay. Now, the work you do and the way you convey it, both of them are gifts, um, and it, it was a gift that you joined us today. I'm very grateful that you've come and Thank you've you. shared so much. Now you have, just quickly tell us, you have a new book coming out in December. The title yep, is what? It's called, it's called Grieving is Loving from Wisdom Publications. I think they just put it online on Amazon uh, okay. as a pre-order. And um, the Sella Care Farm is a place for anyone who has experienced traumatic grief. Our website is Sella. S-E-L-A-H, carefarm.com, sellacarefarm.com. If for parents who have experienced the death of a child, um, specifically the Miss Foundation is an organization I founded, M-I-S-S, foundation.org. And then I have a website for anyone who's had any kind of grief, and it's just my name, joannecacciatore.com, C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E, Joanne with an E at the end. Okay, thank you so much. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast by 6 p.m. Eastern tonight. It'll, it'll be on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, just about all of the platforms 
um, it appears on Amazon Alexa. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next week, please be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.